0: All the time, you have phone
1: WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is the Living Writer Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Swad Amiri. Amiri grew up between Amman, Damascus, Beirut, and Cairo, um, part of the Palestinian uh, diaspora. She studied architecture at the American University in Beirut and the Universities of Michigan and Edinburgh. She's the founder of RIOAC, the Center for Architectural Conservation in Ramallah, where she has been living since the early 1980s. Amiri participated in the 1981-1983 Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations in Washington, D.C., and from 1994 to 1996 was Assistant Deputy Minister and Director General of the Ministry of Culture in Palestine. She's the author of several books on architecture, and the memoir we'll be discussing today called Sharon and My Mother-in-Law, for which she was awarded Italy's Viareggio Versilia Prize in 2004. The book has been translated into 11 languages, and it's just recently released in the U.S. Welcome. It's great to have you.
2: Thank you very much. and Thank you.
1: It's a real treat. Well, as we usually do on the show, I'd love it if you would just read a little bit from the book and then we'll jump in and talk okay, about great. it. Okay, great.
2: I just want to tell you I'm very happy to be back in Ann Arbor because I graduated from the University of Michigan, so it's really it feels good to be back here. Um, I will read you the preface of the book. I don't think I ever understood, or for that matter, forgave my parents or the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who fled their homes in 1948, until my husband and I had to flee our home in Ramallah on 18th of November, 2001. The Israeli army had occupied our neighborhood, al Ersal, and we had to be evacuated. So we went to stay with our friends, Islah and Saleh, and Albiri. My mother-in-law, who fled her home in Jaffa in 1948 and now lives next to Al-Muqata'a, Arafat's headquarters in Ramallah, told me, What I experienced here next to Arafat's headquarters was hell. It was as bad as what we experienced in Jaffa in 1948. But this time we knew better. No matter what, you don't flee your town, you stay home. يَقْطَعُهم God damn them. There has been nothing but trouble ever since they came, meaning the Israelis. I decided to take her advice and went back home, only to have to fetch her away from the hell to come and live with us.
1: Thank you very much. Now this book covers about 20 years. Um, you began writing the diaries from which it's taken in um, 1981 and finished writing in 2004. Is that
2: correct? Well, uh, not exactly. Actually, okay. the book was uh, the book was never meant as a book. It was never meant as uh, to be published. What happened in um, uh, in March 29 of 2002? The Israeli army reoccupied. Uh, the occupied territories and entered most of the Palestinian towns including Ramallah where I live and at that time they imposed the curfew on us we were under curfew for almost 42 days which meant you couldn't leave the house except every four or five days and at that time I had to bring my uh, mother-in-law who lived on her own had to bring her to, to live with me And those of you who have a mother-in-law know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) And that's where the title of the book comes from, Sharon and my mother-in-law, which means the, you know, the Sharon army outside the uh, house and my mother-in-law inside the house. An occupational (laughs) round. Exactly. (laughs) And as a result, it was really compounded pressure that I was living in. At the end of the day, I would just go to my computer and sit down and write emails to friends. And every single day I wrote emails and uh, uh, start sending them out to friends and relatives who really loved them. And then uh, came back saying, Saad, we're really sorry you're going through this very hard time. And as they read them, they laughed and cried at the same time. And uh, so I got lots of encouragement, particularly from my women friends. And it just happened that I have an Italian uh, uh, woman friend by the name of Luisa Morgantini. She is a member of the European Parliament. And she got hold of them, and uh, she called me one day, and she said, Saad, you know what, I want to take this to a publisher. I said, you must be kidding. I mean, these are just emails. And meanwhile, I have lost some of these emails. And sure enough, a week later, I received a phone call from Filtrinelli, a a big publisher in Milano, who told me, you know, I would like to get all the worlds right. And to tell you the truth, I didn't even know what the world's right meant (laughs) at that time. And he said, I'd like to get all the languages. And sure enough, I mean, it's um, it has been almost uh, two years now. And the book, as you mentioned, actually, meanwhile, they've been translated into 15 languages now. Uh, so they were never meant. Now, the, the book really covers my life since I went to live in Palestine in the occupied territories in 1981 until uh, 2004. Uh, so the book stretches the event of my life there, but it was written in the last year. In the last year, yes. okay.
1: Now, w- did you write in Arabic to your friends, or were you writing in English, or were you writing in multiple languages? And which No, actually,
2: there? because they started in email, you know, there is no email in Arabic, so I ended up writing in English, because everybody uses English as an email. And uh, so I wrote them in English, and um, when they were accepted, uh, they were translated from English into Italian.
1: And so the first language of publication was Italian?
2: Exactly. Okay. It was Italian, then French, and what have you. But uh, actually, the book really made it once Granta, which is a publishing house in uh, Britain, uh, got hold of the book. And they were very good in publicity. So when I went to Britain last year, I mean, it was amazing that every single newspaper and every single magazine in Britain um, wrote a review about it, you know, from the Sunday Times, the Observer, uh, the Guardian. And I am very happy that Random House uh, Pantheon in America has published it. And here I am on a tour to try and promote the book, and I'm very happy to be in the University of Michigan promoting. Returning home, so to speak, a little bit. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Now, you grew up as part of the um, Palestinian diaspora. Will you tell me a little bit about um, how that works, where your Mm. folks were from? They left Jaffa, I believe, in 1948, was
2: it? Well, my father is from Jaffa. He grew up from Jaffa. He went to the university to Beirut from Jaffa and uh, um, all my his family is from Jaffa now when in 1948 when 850,000 Palestinians were expelled out of their homes Uh, When the state of Israel was created, my parents were living in Jerusalem at that time. And they had to move from sort of the borders, West Jerusalem, into East Jerusalem. And later on, they had to move into... My father was working in broadcasting, like we're sitting here right now. And he was the head of the Arabic uh, section of the British, the BBC. Anyway, they had to move. they, they, They moved to Ramallah. I was born and raised in Amman. Uh, so I grew up with a with a refugee mentality. I mean, I uh, my my family lost their house, their uh, property in Jaffa, and in the book actually I talk about that. Uh, we grew up in Amman, but being a, a daughter of a Palestinian refugee uh, from my aunts, from my father, I always heard the story of Jaffa, how beautiful it is, the house, how. It had a courtyard, the uh, lower floor, the lemon tree, uh, the houses around it, upstairs is my aunt, downstairs is my uncle. And uh, uh, so you have a vision of it. So in 1981, uh, when I went to teach at Birzeit University, um, it was the first time I go back to Palestine, occupied Palestine, because meanwhile it has been occupied in the war of 1967. And um, I remember my father had visited his house a year earlier. And when he came back uh, after going to Jaffa, he went to see his house to find out that there is an Israeli or a Jewish family living in his house in Jaffa. And he knocked the door. ...at uh, the family there, and uh, they opened the door, and then he explained to them that he's the owner of this house, or he's, you know, this house belongs to him, and he's just coming to visit the house, look at it, and, uh, you know, he was hoping to just go around and see it, and of course they have left their furniture... And he had left his mother's photograph on the wall. And the Israeli Jewish family were very nervous about having the original owner of the house come back. So they just slammed the door in his face and never really allowed him to, to go visit the house. And this stayed with me. I mean, it was a very uh, touching story. So the first thing I wanted to do in 81 is just to go and see my father's house in Jaffa. So I thought I would be ready for the trip. So I, I, I tell the story in the in the book where I go with my husband, he was my boyfriend then, my lover, he's also from Jaffa. So our first date as lovers (laughs) 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 was to go to Jaffa for our first uh, rendezvous, as it were. And in my mind was that I wanted to go and see my father's house. And uh, we look around for it, we ask people, ultimately people tell me where it is. And uh, the last second I decided that I was not emotionally ready, to go and see the house and go through the same experience that my father uh, had gone and not being allowed. So I stopped there and actually, I've been living in the occupied territories for the last, uh, since 81, and I haven't had the courage to go and see my father's house in Jaffa.
1: Well, one of the remarkable things about the book, there are many things written about the Middle East and the history of the Middle Mm -hmm. East, and um, the news is filled with um, the conflict. And one of the remarkable things about the book is that it is a very personal story. It's about what happens in the day to day, um, what it's like to live in a place that um, at different points in history has been home and rightfully so, and now is home in a very compromised sort of way.
2: Right. You know, the the book, I always say, this is a personal story. And I think people love the book because they laugh and cry as they go uh, through it. I mean, there is a story about uh, me coming to uh, from uh, Lod Airport, you know, like when you go to Tel Aviv Airport as a Palestinian, most of the Americans or the Europeans, when they go to the airport, they don't realize that the Palestinians have been... Uh, um, you know they they slip a pink uh, paper in your passport, so the Israeli security know that they have to give you hard time. And most of the Palestinians when you go to the airport, they interrogate you for an hour, or two, and what have you. And in the book, I told I tell the story, for example, about one interrogation when I was really extremely tired, and I just decided not to deal with the Israelis. So the woman takes me to the interrogation room. And the first thing says, what were you doing in London? And, you know, I was just fed up. I didn't want to tell her it's none of your damn business. So I look her straight in the face and I say, I went dancing, you know. (laughs) And (laughs) that
1: goes Uh, over well with someone in uniform, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly.
2: (laughs) And she gets very frustrated with me and she brings her superior. And we spent two, three hours of the Israeli security officers trying to interrogate me. And all I had to tell them is, I went dancing and do you have any problem with dancing? Uh, so at the end of the day, the, the reader knows what kind of thing happens to a Palestinian on a checkpoint uh, or at the airport or uh, in it. I also describe how um, it's impossible. For example, nobody knows that No Palestinian can have their relatives receive them at the airport or at the Jordan crossing. I mean, people in America take it for granted that when you come abroad, it's your wife or, you know, sister, mother, somebody from your family comes and picks you up from the airport. But nobody realizes that this is a privilege no Palestinian has. Or I talk about a number of uh, permits you need, you know, Ramallah, is a very small town, it's even smaller than an arbor probably, it has 70,000 people. But we live in a situation where we have two checkpoints and two gates, and every person who wants to leave that city... Uh, and it's only a five-minute drive. It's like you are in Michigan here, and you're talking about the south, uh, you know...
1: Going to Ipsy and... Exactly, and
2: there is a checkpoint there, there is a gate, there are Israeli soldiers, and uh, checking every certain person going through that checkpoint, you can't drive your car out of Ann Arbor, basically. You just use the car inside, and you're not allowed to use your car outside. And if you want to go between... uh, Ann Arbor and Detroit, you have to go through three, four, five sh- checkpoints. So the book really is about the human suffering of the Palestinians. Because when you say Israel and uh, Palestine, everybody thinks that there is a two armies. You know? It's not like the Second World War, two armies, Germany and Britain and America, fighting one another. It is basically an Israeli army occupying 303 uh, million and a half Palestinians and preventing them from going to work, reaching hospitals, going to a nursery, imposing a curfew. In the year two thousand and two there was one hundred and six days of curfews in the town of Nablus. That's
1: a third of the year. A third so of the year. We're going to have to take a short break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Suara Miri, author of Sharon and my mother-in-law. We'll be right back. You're tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is architect and writer Swad Amiri. We are talking about her memoir, Sharon and My Mother-in-Law. I wonder if you'll read a bit more from the book for us.
2: Yes, certainly. I mean, this is a story. This is my personal story about uh, getting married to someone from the West Bank, a Palestinian, Salim Tamari, and uh, he has a residency and... Uh, Um, The law in Israel say if you get married to somebody, you have the, the right to live with them. And actually we married in 19... I went to Palestine in 81 and we married in 84. And it wasn't until 89 that the Israelis gave me the residency to be living with my husband. Which meant that every month I had to renew my visiting permit. And it took almost five days to renew that permit standing in line... Uh, spending hours in the rain or the sunshine before they gave you the permit. And, and all
1: this time you're teaching at there's I am teaching at Beerset
2: so so and I am poor students. I mean, I'm missing on many of my lectures. And every three months I had to leave the country, go to Jordan, and then apply for a permit and come back. And uh, many times it just happened, even though the Israeli give you a permit to come back and be with your husband, uh, many times they turn you at the bridge. And here is one story that I am telling after we got married. You know, to get married, we went to Jordan. And then when we ha- went to a honeymoon in uh, in Cairo, and we were coming happily, you know, married, coming back from Cairo. And this is...
1: Uh, now, you went to Jordan in part because some of your relatives wouldn't have been able to come to a wedding yes, in the West yes, Bank. Yes, yes,
2: absolutely. I mean, uh, this is something very important. People don't realize also, if you live in the West Bank, None of your relatives can visit you unless they have an American or European passport, but none of your Arab uh, relatives can visit you. So um, being raised in Amman, uh, all my friends, my family are um, from Amman, Damascus and Beirut, and there is no way they can come and visit me in Ramallah. Uh, so that's why, absolutely, we had the wedding in Amman. We had to go, so we have somebody in the wedding. Okay. <laughs> and as we're, we went to the honeymoon in Cairo, and we came back, and this is what happened. I'll just read you a little bit. Two weeks later, the bride and the gr- br- uh, bridegroom were happily crossing a limb bridge together. When an Israeli woman soldier approached, took my one-month visitor's permits, which I had made sure I acquired before I left Ramallah for Amman, and tore it into little pieces in front of my eyes, she coldly ordered me to go back to Amman. I am his wife now. You can't turn me back. As a wife, I have the right to live with my husband, I objected. My words seemed to have no effect on the soldier's deaf ears. Let me sign the anti-PLO statement once again, I pleaded in vain as neither she nor Salim knew what I was talking about. This is referring to some other uh, occasion where I wanted to come back home, and they would not allow me home uh, unless I would sign an anti-PLO statement, so I I am referring to this. There is nothing more frustrating and humiliating than arguing with an Israeli soldier. Why argue when their minds were made up long time ago? The groom went in one direction and the bride went back to Amman. And, um, you know, th- she just tore the a permit that her superior had given me in Ramallah. And, you know, we were married, happily coming back home. And then, you know, very simply, she just tore the permit and asks you to go back to Amman. And that's what happened. Salim crossed, with, went to Ramallah. And I went back to Amman, and I I had to wait for almost three months.
1: Before you could join your husband. Before I could join my husband, yes. Now, a lot of the references in the book to the Israeli soldiers are men, and you mentioned that your women friends, particularly the one in Italy who helped you get the book published initially, or even suggested it, rather. These were emails and and, um, two friends. Um, You speak about many of your friends, and and you call yourself a feminist in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, How... In this particular case, this was a, a female soldier, and you specify so in the book. I'm wondering how you feel about, um, there are these, po- you know, it was her superior and there are these powers at be that mm. are operating and affecting very personal um, lives. Right. Um, how does gender figure in at this level?
2: Well, there is a story here with the Qalqilia. go trying to go to the Qalqilya. there is a story about the apartheid wall that the Israelis have built between, you know, on the Palestinian land uh, now. And in it, I talk about a, an Israeli soldier, woman soldier, and I say uh, in it, I guess once you have a uniform, gendered, disappears. And uh, do you
1: think that happens in general that once the uniform it's it's the government and and the sort of personal aspect of the people wearing the uniforms disappears?
2: Well, not totally, totally, but the fact that somebody you know there are there is a movement in Israel now, a very important movement in Israel called the Refusnik. People, I mean, people have the choice. Sometimes it is a difficult choice in America or in uh, Israel or people where they have to join the army. In the case of Israel, every single man has to join the army as well as a woman. And to uh, go and refuse to join the army and be a refusenik, many times people end up in prison. And we know lately that there are people in Israel, young men and women who have decided not to join the army If they want to go to the occupied territories, I mean, they will say we will join the Israeli army provided we don't go and occupy others. And there are young men who have taken their decisions, but they have ended in prison. I mean, they are taken to court. And when they say, yes, we don't want to be part of the army and we refuse to uh, occupy other people, they end up spending six months or uh, one year in prison. So um, there are soldiers, I mean, there are Israelis who join the army, and sometimes you, de- you do feel the difference, but in most cases, there is hardly any human interaction. I mean, for us, unfortunately, I mean, we only see the soldiers, and that's why uh, the soldiers are soldiers. They, they behave terribly, and they are given instruction to behave uh, te- terribly with the Palestinians. So when you have a, a, a soldier occupying your house, I mean, even if he was very progressive, you wouldn't even know uh, that. So... Um, in general of course people differ I mean mean, you have very nasty soldiers and you have on the checkpoint people who treat you with a um, little uh, respect, if you want. But at the end of the day, you are at a checkpoint, and they are wasting your time, and they're stopping you from moving. They're not allowing you into Jerusalem. So you even if a, you are a nice soldier, you can't do much, because the instructions the are very nasty.
1: Now you tell a, a, a very amusing anecdote in the book about... Um, there, so you, you balance humor with um, the, the more... Um, sad or tragic moments, and one of them has to do with your dog. Um, uh, yes. You go off to the vet, um, uh, you, you're not pleased with the Palestinian yes, Arab vet. Dr. Hisham. Dr. Hisham yes. is awful. Yes. So you go find an Israeli vet who gives your dog a Jerusalem set of papers, essentially. Right, right. And then you tell a story about getting through a checkpoint as yeah, your dog's driver? Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's why that's why the cover the American cover has uh, the the dog actually. I brought you my I brought you Noura's uh identity card, you know, the passport with me. I show it when I go around. But anyway, uh yes, I mean this is one of the stories I like and I am glad when people refer to it because it's basically uh, um, you know, I just want to give the listeners a feeling. Uh, uh, the Israelis occupied the, the West Bank and Gaza in 67, including Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, which is the biggest Arab town. It has around uh, 200,000 people, Arab uh, Arabs in it. But meanwhile, the Israelis have confiscated the town and made it part of Israel. And um, so the, um, the the Israelis' policy is really to get rid of the Arab population all the time. So they make it it's impossible for anybody to acquire a Jerusalem ID. Not only that, if you happen to be a Palestinian, they make all sorts of kind of excuses to deprive you. And there have been tens of thousands of Arabs who have lost their Jerusalem identity. Basically, if you're traveling, you are a student abroad. If you stay more than three years, you lose your... Ar- so these are Arabs born in East yeah, Jerusalem? Yeah, these are Arabs um, born in East Jerusalem. Therefore, families have been there for generations. They are own property. And you know when an Israeli student go away for 2 3 years 7 years they never lose their uh, their identity or their residency but if a Palestinian loses for more than 6 months or 1 year then you lose your identity so it is a big issue that the Arabs are losing their identity card in Jerusalem And to go to Jerusalem for someone like me who lives in Ramallah or in the West Bank, you need a number of permits. You know, you need a permit for yourself, you need a permit for your car, and it's a long uh, story. So. Uh, just to come back to the stories, at one point we had a terrible, terrible pa- vet, uh, Palestinian vet, who did not respect my ex-dog because it was, had no breed and happened to <laughs> and be a female. a female. He <laughs> called it a bitch. So I was so annoyed with him. I mean, he, he, he sort of made me feel very feminist and a nationalist at this point. So when I acquired this little cute dog, a terrier, a Manchester Toy Terrier, I decided I'm not going to take it to this Palestinian vet. And I ended up going to an Israeli vet, which was difficult by itself. Not only that, an Israeli who lives in a sort of a settlement in between. Anyway, to make a long story short, we end up with having my dog uh, acquiring a Jerusalem identity or a Jerusalem passport. and So I just want to play around with it. So I take the dog and I take her document and I go to a checkpoint on the way to Jerusalem and I uh, stop there and the Israeli soldier comes and says, can I have your permit to go to Jerusalem? I say, I don't have a permit. And uh, do you have the car's permit? No, the car doesn't have a permit. And then soldier, the soldier looks at me and says, how do you expect to go to Jerusalem if you don't have permits? So I get the uh, my dog's document and say, you know, I am the driver of this Jerusalem dog. (laughs) (laughs) And the soldier, Israeli soldier, gets really entertained. He said, what, are you the driver of this Jerusalem dog? And anyway, I I, I end up going through the checkpoint. But basically, really, all all I'm saying is like... um, you know, reading that story, we realize the Jerusalem, the the sad story of Arabs in Jerusalem, and uh, you know, I just tell it through my dog, and people laugh. But at the end of the do- day, it tells a sad situation that we're living in.
1: You still have this dog? She's on the cover of your yeah, yeah, the, of, of your, course. Yeah, and you you say that you take her everywhere, and I, I want to sort of circle back a little bit. You, um. Are the, the founder of Uwak, the Center for Ar- Architectural Conservation in Ramallah, um, whose mission in part is to document um, Palestinian buildings that are being demolished. Exactly. Um, there's, I read somewhere that you can't save them, but you can at least document them and, and create archives and records.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, also in my book, I, I talk. I mean, I, okay, I I am an architect uh, by training, and we do de- con- we do conservation of historic buildings. And we do a lot of projects in the villages. We turn old buildings into community center and cultural centers. And these jobs, uh, these projects, create lots of jobs for Palestinians in rural areas because of the occupation. We have sometimes unemployment up to sixty percent. So conservation is labor labor intensive. So we provide lots of jobs for the people. Uh, But you have to realize at the end of the story, the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis is really about land, only about land. And people tend to think it's very complicated. We don't understand what the problem is between Arabs and Muslims and Jews and Israelis. And I say, absolutely, there is no conflict between the Arabs or the Jews or the Israelis. There is one word that we disagree upon, which is the land. And the problem is that the Israelis confiscate Arab land every single day. As I'm talking to you now, they're confiscating or demolishing a house. Now, part of the conflict really is about the character of that land, because this is an Arab land that has been, uh, you know, when you go around at one point, it was, you know, like Jaffa is an Arab town, Akka is an Arab town, Haifa and what have you, Jerusalem. And part of the Zionization, of the Judaization of Palestine, historic Palestine, is to make it look Western. And, um, you know, there is the Israelis all along were boasting around saying, we turn the desert uh, uh, green. And there is a brilliant book written by an Israeli historian or Israeli geographer. Uh, his name is Mem uh, Venesti, where he writes a book called "The Sacred La- The Sacred Landscape: The Buried Landscape of Palestine." And in it, he shows that ever since the state of Israel has been created, almost three million trees have been uprooted uh, by the Israelis, and one and ha- one million and two hundred and fifty thousand olive trees have been uprooted just in the last one year. So um, uh, in our work, we try to protect whatever is left from historic buildings because the history of Israel has been demolishing Palestinian villages. Only between the year 48 and 51, they demolished 220 Palestinian villages. So that's what we try to do, to keep the character of some of the buildings there.
1: There, Well, we're going to take a short break. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is architect and writer Swad Amiri, author of the memoir, Sharon and My Mother-in-Law. We'll be right back. Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is author Suwad Amiri. We're discussing her memoir Sawad, um Sorry, <laughs> Sharon and my mother-in-law. Um, you now. You mentioned in, earlier in the show that the book was um, the product of email correspondence that you wrote during the curfews in 2002 2002, and And, um, a friend in Italy said no we want to publish these and so the book was first published in Italian and has since been translated into 15 languages Mm Um, the title is very interesting to me. You, you've, you've got your mother-in-law and Sharon on the same line. Right, <laughs> so right. So <laughs> let's talk about your mother-in-law.
2: Yeah, I think that the, the title is very catchy, and maybe the success of the book has be, has to do with the title. But, yeah, you know, it's very amazing because the title just happened. I don't even remember when I decided to call it Sharon and my mother-in-law. It happened very naturally. But I, w- I would like to talk about why this title. I mean... Um, First of all, for me, the title is really a reflection of the balance of power between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And this is people don't understand that the Palestinians are three and a half million civilians living under Israeli or, you know, being controlled by the biggest army in the world, uh, not in the world, in the Middle East, but one of the biggest in, uh, strongest in the world. So Sharon is the symbol of that Israeli military society. And my mother-in-law, who, uh, when I wrote the book, was 92, uh, is a very fragile woman, but a very stubborn woman, a very strong woman, and artist, a painter, who insisted, in spite of all the difficulties of the occupation, of the bombardment, of the shelling, that she wanted to have a good life, and she wanted to continue to have her routine and uh, in the book i talk about you know she i had to fetch her from her house to come and live with me i ended her her because she was living next to al muqata Arafat's headquarters which was very very tough there was no electricity no water and uh, um, no food nothing for 12 days when i had to bring her and of course, I brought her from hell. But then she came to my house, and hell started in my house. <laughs> <laughs> <You> <laughs> because <brought it> home. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, who brings their mother-in-law to uh, to uh, live with them? And uh, you know, there is a a paragraph here that uh, the the book starts uh, with. It's on the jacket of the book, and this is I'm talking to Sharon, and I uh, tell Sharon or the Israelis in general. Perhaps one day I may forgive you for putting us under curfew for 42 days, but I. Will Will never, never forgive you for making us live with my mother-in-law, for what seemed then more like 42 years. <laughs>
1: <Right>. Well, and <laughs> and I think many married women with mother-in-laws who have, who have strong personalities would agree with you. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. So, um, so I had uh, my mother-in-law live with me. Now, I don't have uh, children, but as you know, the Pal- many of the Palestinians have five or six children. And uh, to be under curfew for 106 days, like the town of uh, Nablus, and to be living with your husband, with your mother-in-law, with your children, and people don't realize that curfew means you cannot even go to the garden or to your balcony. It drives you crazy. I mean, people don't realize that the occupation... uh, Makes people really very, very psychologically tired to be sitting at home with the children screaming, not being able to go to school. Uh, people.
1: So you're inside the house, windows closed, curtains closed, no balcony, no garden. Absolutely. I and mean, this there is has. For most of the week with a break every three or four days?
2: Yes, every four days the Israelis uh, go around in certain neighborhoods also. Sometimes I remember the first time they lifted the curfew, I didn't even know about it. Uh, And um, so you are sitting at home day and night And actually part of the reasons I wrote my memoirs also Is to keep track of the time Because you don't know which day of the week it is, uh, which hour of the day sometimes. And
1: uh, and so you're not at work, your students are are not in school, everything just shuts
2: down. You know, can you imagine having a child whom you took for a nursery or kindergarten the first day, explain to them what is it all about, then they sit at home for 42 days, then go out to school. I I mean... I taught at Birzeit University in the first year I was there in 1982, and they closed the university by military order for seven months. Can you imagine the University of Michigan, students not going to school for seven months and going to school only for two months? I mean, people don't realize the cruelty. So this book really is about um, the human aspect, how the occupation deprives you from your basic rights, of movement, going to work, reaching to the hospital, um, you know, playing in the the street. I mean, there are parts here where I describe only the children in my neighborhood. You know, we have a very lively neighborhood, and people are screaming, uh, running around with their bicycles. And then the Israeli army arrives, and then there is a total silence. And um, I remember I also write um, about my two, you know, my neighbors, there is Seri and Basil, and Basil is like seven years old, and the Israelis there, and they're talking, laughing. But when the Israelis withdraw from the town, the boy doesn't speak for two or three months. He, Basil does not say one word. And there are lots of Palestinian children who are traumatized by, an, by uh, uh, having a soldier. People don't realize that during that occupation, the Israelis came and lived in some people's houses
1: with, alongside them. So you have the family and they, the Israelis, or they had to leave.
2: Yeah, yeah, no. They, sometimes they have to leave, but in most cases, they lock the whole family of six or seven or eight people into one room, and the Israeli army uses the rest of the room. They sit there, and you know, they use the house. They watch the TV, and even if you wanted to go to the bathroom, you have to ask the Israeli soldier a permit. Uh, you know just can For i permission. go to the uh, permission to go to the bathroom so people don't realize the cruelty of the israeli occupation and this book is uh, you know it's about that how the israelis don't leave you alone
1: now you tell a story in there about a time when there's not, no curfew, when mm-hmm. there's there's more relative freedom. Right. And um, your niece comes to visit. She yes. gets a permit. She comes to visit, and um, a man is stopped outside his car in clear distress. And you and your niece pick him up and take him to the hospital. Right. Now he's an Israeli man, right. and um, this is the the first encounter your niece has with an Israeli. Um, and you take him to a Palestinian hospital. to an, or, or an Israeli hospital. But he's, <laughs> he's distressed. And right. there, he, there's a line at the end. He mutters under his breath as he's leaving. Well, something to the effect that, well, I guess not all Arabs are bad or dangerous. So on both sides of the wall, or the, there are um, these misperceptions about people as individuals. And one of the, the things that you do in this book um, that is quite powerful is to show Precisely what those personal experiences are, and how some of these larger um, feelings are
2: created. Absolutely, you know, I always say when you want to occupy a nation or you want to wage war on a nation, you always you have to demonize that other side, other the other. And, uh, you know, to be able to convince your soldiers that, you know, you have to go somewhere and beat these people up or imprison them or treat them badly, you have to show them as monsters. And that's what the Israelis do with the Palestinians. And they uh, I many times say that the Israelis themselves are victims of their own governments. And uh, we have to remember that most of the time government abuse fear. Of course, the Israeli society related to the history of the Jewish people and the creation of the state of Israel, there is a lot of fear in that society. And I always say that the Israelis are the stronger army, but we are stronger in psychology, and that's a big difference. I mean, uh, it took a long years for me to realize how insecure the Israelis are as individuals. And of course, Sharon plays on that. I mean, uh, governments play on the fear of nations to make them take, uh, if you want to occupy a nation, you can't tell them the Palestinians are nice people and these are their lands and we're going to take their homes. You're going to say these people are terrorists, they're going to kill us. If we don't kill them, they'll kill us, and things like that. We've seen it in Vietnam, we've seen it in South Africa, unfortunately we've seen it in Iraq now, and we see it in Palestine and the Israelis. So the Israelis are terrified many times from the Palestinians as a result of their government and the machine that is just putting them in uh, fear. And there is a story of a sick man who is having a heart attack, and I, by accident an Israeli was... Uh, having a heart attack and I was passing by and of course I had I mean I just picked him up and put him in my car and uh, the, the guy was so curious because he had this uh, talk Arabic and he was about to have a heart attack about just the by Arabic. having two women speaking Arabic and taking him to the, uh, to the hospital and uh, you know I have this conversation which is very funny but I know that first of all I took him from his car so his car was deserted in the middle of the road and I had the vision of the Israeli army coming and finding an Israeli car in the middle of the road with nobody in it. I was thinking of how many Arabs have been put in prison or stopped because they've been accused one way or another that something funny happened about this car. And I take the Israeli who's basically dying but all the time he's just like trying to say oh Uh, uh, he he realizes are you Palestinians I say yes oh I see then he says are you from Jerusalem I say no I'm from Ramallah and of course Ramallah I mean it's a bit scary for the Israelis and then he says uh, at first he says uh, you're from Bethlehem which is like the peace, town of peace, is no, I'm sorry, I'm from Ranla. And then he tells me, uh, you must be Christian. No, I'm Muslim. I mean, it's just like I give him all the things he doesn't want to hear, but this is the reality. And he's having a heart attack. (laughs) And he's having a heart attack. And ultimately, when I give him a ride to the hospital and the nurses come to take him, he looks at me and he says, there are good Palestinians after all. So I said, I hope this would not be the last words he says before he faces his... Faces
1: uh, his maker, yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, we are just about out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, you're on a tour now in the U.S. to... Y- yes, the actually the
2: book, b- Sharon and my mother-in-law, had just come out uh, by Pantheon uh, Random House. I stopped in uh, New York, and I am uh, yesterday I was in Detroit in the museum... Uh, Arab American Museum in Durban and today I am in 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 Ann Arbor. This evening we have an event in Ann Arbor at uh, 7 o'clock with the Palestine Aid Society and uh, I will be going to Washington D.C.
1: Wonderful. Well, um, we want to thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. that You've been listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today has been architect and writer Swad Amiri, author of the memoir, Sharon and My Mother-in-Law. This has been pre-recorded for broadcast today. Please stay tuned to WCBN-FM. And every week at 4.30 until 5.15, the Living Writers Show airs. So please join us again next week. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, you're tuned in to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thank you for joining me today for the pre-recorded show of Swada Miri, talking about and reading from her memoir, Sharon and My Mother in Law. The schedule for the summer Living Writers show is from four thirty to five thirty, so today for the remainder of the show we'll be sharing with you some pre recorded work by Cornell West.
3: Let the word go forth here and now that the struggle for freedom is still alive and the story of that struggle is still being told. We begin with guttural cries and wrenching moans and visceral groans and weary lament and silent tears and how this grand people of African descent could transfigure such misery into joy and a sense of sustaining themselves against overwhelming odds. What a story, what a drama. Vicious theft from Africa. Pernicious passage to the New World America, atrocious enslavement on ugly plantations. (laughs) (laughs) Yet in wooden churches, on God forsaken creeks, in makeshift churches, they would forge a connection with a biblical story.
0: Child, child of God, every child of God,
3: running for Jesus just like an the first great every art child, created child in America the spirituals proclaiming the good news in bad news situations connecting wheel. the sense of self against a society that told them they were nobody and no one Flag you down. keep keepin' on was the theme and then the painful laughter of the grand art blue, blue.